So as we're in Nehemiah chapter number one, uh, some of you already will be familiar with this passage of scripture because we're teaching through the book of Nehemiah right now in Sunday school and have been for some time. We jumped from Ezra directly into Nehemiah. And now that we are in Nehemiah, I have just been so amazed as always at how God's word opens up. And uh, this morning, I hope to be no different. My desire, my heart's desire is for this to be a passage that speaks directly to our hearts. I will tell you, however, that it was an unexpected sermon. Uh, Most of the times, if I'm being honest, they are unexpected sermons because I never know from one week to the next generally uh, what scripture God is going to raise off the page that he'll want me to preach here. And so whenever I was reading through the book of Nehemiah this week, uh, this passage, it just, I, I couldn't get away from it. And it was one thought that God replayed over and over and over in my heart that ultimately led uh, to the sermon that I'd like to preach for you this morning entitled, From Cupbearer to Carpenter. From Cupbearer to Carpenter. And as a subtitle, I think it's only fitting that we give it a subtitle of Sacrificing Position for Purpose. Sacrificing position for purpose. And of course, we know that's exactly what Nehemiah does here in Nehemiah chapter number one. We'll get to that in a moment. You know, the American dream is made of many slivers, not the least of which is working hard to gain a position. Uh, One of the things that I always dreamed of growing up was the idea of climbing the corporate ladder. I know you all get tired of hearing about my dreams when I was growing up because I had a bunch of them. Never did I dream in my wildest dreams that I would get the supreme privilege of being your pastor. Uh, As I grew up, I had a lot of things I wanted to do, and climbing the corporate ladder was one of them. I'd go to the big city. That's what we called it. It's kind of embarrassing now looking back on it because I was referring to Indianapolis, okay? Uh, my family and I, we, whenever I was growing up, I always, I mean, I just loved going to the big city and we'd go into the big city and we'd look at those high rise buildings and the two or three that are down there. And we would look at those things and I'd be like, wow, that's amazing. You know, that'd be so neat. And I would think about, you know, one of these days becoming a big, you know, business person. And those thoughts always came through my mind growing up. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to to climb that corporate ladder. I wanted to gain a position, then gain another position and win an award and win another award and and essentially get myself into a position of comfort and, and, uh, uh, you know, a a position of respect and notoriety. And, you know, there are several things that are gained, several things that are gained by earning a position, Uh, better pay, maybe a better office space, more respect, more notoriety, more reverence from your coworkers, or whatever the case may be, more authority, more power. There's a lot of things that are gained by gaining a position. And I want to start off this morning's sermon by making sure I state for you that there is absolutely nothing wrong with gaining a position by working hard and being honorable at your place of employment. There, there, in fact, it would be the expectation of God's people to work hard and to live honorably, and by doing so, to ultimately garner a a good position. However, one of the things that leapt off the page at me here in Nehemiah chapter number 1, and then I started thinking about Scripture as a whole, 
and how many examples there are of some of the greatest men and women of God throughout the ages have been people that were willing to abandon all of the things that made their lives luxurious in order to follow after God. They gave up the fine, well-paying positions ultimately to pursue God's purpose for their life. I started thinking about the different ones that did exactly that. The first one popped into my head was Abram. Ultimately, his name would be changed to Abraham. But when Abram started out, he was the next in line to become a great patriarch in his native land. I mean, the way things were set up in society at that time, you basically had the chief of an entire area. And Abram was virtually next in line to be that next chief of that culture, that society. And then God comes along and calls him out. He doesn't tell him where he's going to go. He doesn't tell him how long the trip's going to be. He just says, Abram, go. And Abram goes and follows after God. Ultimately, he becomes the father of the greatest nation the world has ever known. Then I thought about Moses, that Egyptian prince. What an amazing start to Moses' life, right? He's adopted of all the people, of all the people he could have floated up to. He floated up to the princess of Egypt. And she adopts him in as one of her own children, next in line to be Pharaoh. And ultimately, he chooses his own people. And because of his choice of his own people, and of course we know there was a scuffle between him and and one of the guards at the time, and It led to that man's death. He goes off into the desert and works for several years as a shepherd in the desert, almost alone. Then I thought about Nehemiah. Here in chapter 1, the king's cupbearer. By the time we get to the end of chapter number 2, he's no longer the king's cupbearer, but instead he becomes a carpenter working alongside hundreds of other carpenters on the wall around Jerusalem. I think about Luke in the New Testament, the great physician who gives up his practice in order to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. I think about Paul, the Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, one of the brightest up and coming Jewish leaders in the world. And he abandons it all to follow after Christ. Example after example after example after example in the scriptures of people who, instead of living their entire life pursuing after a position, abandoned their position in order to fulfill their God-given purpose. One of the greatest examples in the modern era of this taking place is the example of a man by the name of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday, for those of you that don't know, he was a lightning-fast baseball star. At the turn of the century. Going into the 1890s, it was Billy Sunday that everybody wanted on their team. He was rotated over the course of about eight seasons over three different teams. He played for the Chicago White Stockings. Then he played, was traded over to the Pittsburgh Alleghenies. And he ended his career with the Philadelphia Phillies. 
The reason so many people loved Billy Sunday and his his skill level, he wasn't the greatest batter in the world. His average was about 240 to 245, uh, his batting average. The, his fielding was pretty exciting because they didn't use baseball gloves at that time. For those of you that don't know, it was all barehanded play. And so as an outfielder, you can imagine having those fly balls come at you. You've got nothing but these two hands to catch them with. And that's what made Billy Sunday famous. He was known as the guy that could get to a ball that nobody else could get to. In fact, in 1890, they put him up against the fastest man in the league, in the National Baseball League. And he beat him in a 100-yard dash by 10 steps. For those of you that know anything about track and field, you know that's a dominating performance. The fastest guy in the league, he beat him by 10 steps in a 100-yard dash. When Billy Sunday ended his career in baseball, it was a shock to everyone. No one expected this speedy, lightning-fast outfielder to quit and give up on his position. At the time that he gave up his position on the Philadelphia Phillies in 1891, he was making $3,500 a year. Now again, we're talking about 1891. That's a lot of money that he was making in 1891 playing baseball. What shocked people more was not that he gave up his position as a professional baseball player, but what really shocked people is what he gave up his position to be. He literally left as being a star player for the Philadelphia Phillies in 1891, making $3,500 a year to be, you ready for this? An assistant secretary at a local YMCA making $83 a month. Jaw-dropping. No one could believe it. When you would ask Billy Sunday, why on earth would you sacrifice such fame and fortune for such a minuscule position? He would tell you, it's what God wanted me to do really that simple you know billy sunday he was no he didn't sugarcoat things he was a very plain talking man and ultimately from the 1890s into the early 1900s and really all through the early 1900s into 1930s up until he breathed his last breath on earth he was one of the most prolific evangelists of the era god used him literally to reach Thousands upon thousands upon thousands with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason that story is so important is because I think that all the Billy Sundays of our world are almost gone. We've reached a place where because of where we live and how we live, We have no choice but to grapple at whatever position that we can gain. And literally, people will live their entire lives in pursuit of one thing. A bigger paycheck. Because we need more things. Because we need to impress more people. So that we can get a bigger crowd of people following us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So then we can pat ourselves on the back more. So then we can die. The truth is, somehow, over the course of the last century, we have convinced ourselves that gaining a position is what life is all about. 
And a position in and of itself is not a problem at all. In fact, I believe in many cases, God can put you into a position in order to be what He wants you to be and in order to fulfill His purpose for your life. But if your life is all about the position, then it really is a waste of a good life. You know, I've always believed that there are two types of investors. Two types. There are those who invest their life in things. And then there are those who invest their lives in people. There's only two. Those who choose to spend their entire lives investing in things, they seem like they have a great life. Outsiders looking in see the smiling faces on their posts on social media. They see that they must have a nice bank account because of the car they're driving. They see all these amazing Things that they've garnered because of their position, the life that they've lived and the investments that they've made in things. But it doesn't take long for that investor to look back on his life or her life and see only vanity and emptiness. But for those who choose to invest their lives for the cause of Christ in people. Oh, now there's a life that's worth living. As you move through and you look at different ones through the scriptures, what you find is the great ones were those who chose to invest their lives in people. And those who went by the wayside were those who chose to invest their lives in fortune, fame, different things of this life, this world. Nehemiah, fortunately, in chapter number one, chose the right investment. Let's look at it together. Nehemiah chapter number one and verse number one. From cup bearer to carpenter. Look at Nehemiah chapter number 1 and verse number 1 with me. The Bible says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, And it came to pass in the month Chislu, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity... There in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. It came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer uh, of of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for, uh, for the children of Israel, thy servant, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly. Against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence. And will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants 
who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now listen to this phrase. For I was the king's cupbearer. Wow. I was the king's cupbearer. You know, it's interesting to me that this young, probably 20-something Jewish man had somehow found himself lifted to this position. You know, it's the first thing I want to highlight in this morning's sermon is the position of Nehemiah. As the king's cupbearer, you've got to realize it was a dangerous job to a certain degree. The reason for the, the main purpose of a cupbearer was to taste everything that was going to go into the king's mouth before he ate or drank it to ensure that if somebody was going to try to kill the king by way of poison, it'd kill the cupbearer first. Now, some people look at that and think, whoa, I wouldn't want that job. But you've got to realize that was a very rare thing, at least in this era and at this time in this kingdom. Just, just didn't hardly happen. And so it was very unlikely that, that Nehemiah was going to die this way. But you talk about some serious perks to the job. For one, you'll notice in verse number one that he was in Shushan the palace. Notice that it says in verse number one, I was in Shushan the palace. Nehemiah at this time was enjoying the greatest luxuries on earth. He lived in the king's palace. He didn't live around it. He lived in the king's palace with the king. You talk about luxury. He also enjoyed some of the highest forms of camaraderie. All the rulers of the day, he was in on the conversation. Now, he may not have said anything because it wasn't his position to say anything, but he got to hear things that nobody else got to hear. What a position. He also enjoyed consistency. He knew every day what he was supposed to do, where he was supposed to be, when he was supposed to be there. Oh, he enjoyed some pretty extravagant cuisine as well. You can only imagine, as the king's cupbearer, he got to try everything. It's like a dream job for a Baptist preacher, by the way. I'm here to tell you right now, I'd sign up for that job. If there's ever a job opening, you let me know, okay? That's what Nehemiah is doing here. And although Nehemiah was living his best life, that's something everybody's using right now. They're using that phrase, living my best life, and you'll see something in their hand they shouldn't be drinking, or you'll see, see them doing something maybe they shouldn't be doing. They say, I'm living my best life. And at this time, Nehemiah, as we look in at where he's at, the position that he's in, some people would say that Nehemiah was living his best life for himself. Nevertheless, something was very wrong. Notice in verse number two, we, we transition from his position to his people. It says in verse number two that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. 
You know what happened? All of a sudden, all the things that Nehemiah was enjoying became bitterness to him. Because his focus was turned from the things and the position that, that he was in to, to the people. The people that were hurting. His people. He realized based on the report that came from Hanani that his people were few in number. It says that they were merely a remnant in verse number 3. He noticed that his people were famished. You'll notice that they were escaped from captivity. You talk about a rough start. It was already bad enough that there was captivity going on. They escaped the captivity so we know they had nothing. These are people, they're few, they're famished, they're also far away from him. In verse number three, he's asking about a province that he's not in. It's It's a long ways away from where he's at. His people are also fractured. Notice it says that they were in great affliction. It literally means that they were broken. If you look up the phrase affliction, it means to be broken. They're literally telling him, he's saying, you know, here he is. Who knows what he's dressed in? I'm sure it was ornate garb that he was wearing as the king's cupbearer. I'm sure he had just finished a scrumptious meal. I'm sure that that he was literally living it up at the moment that this report comes to him. And all of a sudden he realizes that while he may have everything, the people that are important to him are broken. Finally, he's realizing as well at this report that his people are fearful. It says that they're in great affliction and reproach. The word reproach means that they're in trouble. It means that there are threats against them. It means that people are out to get them and destroy them. And all of a sudden it comes full circle and Nehemiah's focus is turned from his position to this other purpose out here that perhaps God would be calling him to. And so, he moves on and considers the people and he also considers the province. He thinks about this place that God's name abides in. This place that at one time in past history during the great kings like David and Solomon had been the greatest kingdom on earth, not because of the men who led it, but because of the God who had birthed it. And now the glory of God is is waning and, and is belittled because of this province that once was the greatest on earth is now crumbling. They tell him that the garrison, the wall around the city of Jerusalem had been broken down and crumbled. He's told that the gates have been burned. You know... To tie it into kind of where we're at today, if I may, I can't help but think of the churches across our nation. You know, if you look at our churches, I'm not talking about physically, the structural integrity of the churches. I'm talking about the spiritual fabric of churches in our nation right now. If we're honest with ourselves, if we... If we look at it, perhaps from God's perspective, would you not agree with me this morning that the garrisons, the walls around our churches have been broken down? 
Look at how the world has infiltrated and flooded into the churches. You can't hardly find a Bible in most churches today. You'd have to go for two, three, four months before you heard a traditional hymn sung. You listen to the sermon and there's no inclination of anything that has to do with Jesus. It's all about you and your wealth and your prosperity and your health. Would you not agree with me as well? Not only have the walls been broken around our churches, but the gates have been burned in our homes. You know, you start thinking about homes across our nation. I'm talking about Christian homes. I'm talking about homes that have a born-again mom and a born-again dad still living together, abiding together, married with children. I'm talking about a, a scriptural, biblical family unit. Even some of the strongest homes, the gates have been burned. And Satan has got free access to come and go as he pleases. Even in some of the supposedly strongest homes there are. It's literally like we've given Satan the keys and said, Hey, you come and go whenever you want, but we're available. Our family's available. Say, oh, is it that bad? If you've got a smart TV, it's that bad. If you've got an unprotected Wi-Fi, it's that bad. If you've got availability for your children, your wife, your husband, your spouse to, to access things they shouldn't in your home, it is that bad. The gates have been burned down. And the glory of God in both our homes and our churches has been so belittled. You know, God has a plan for your home. God has a plan for your home. And can I tell you that God's plan for your home doesn't just consist of survival? Because somehow that's what we've convinced ourselves of because Jesus is coming and life is hard and the world is dark. And evil. And so we've convinced ourselves that God's plan for my home right now <coughs> is to survive. No, God's plan for your home is much bigger than that. I believe what God intends for your home to be is an oasis of the presence of God in a dry and thirsty land. I believe what God's intention is for your home and my home is to be a reflection of the relationship that Christ wants to have with His church. I believe that God wants your home to be a fortress to guard the hearts and lives of young people until they're old enough to guard their own heart and follow the Holy Spirit in their own life. I believe that God intends for your home to be a, a station from which the gospel of Jesus Christ can be shot out to all these dark places around our world. God intends for your home to be so much more than a place to survive. And the reason it's not is because we gave Satan the keys. We've literally granted him free access. The garrisons have been broken. The gates have been burned. The glory of God has been belittled. As Nehemiah considers this about his homeland, 
His heart is broken over it. We finally look to close out the sermon this morning at his prayer. Notice at the end of this chapter, Nehemiah breaks out into an emotional plea. The first thing that that I see about this man in this prayer, we're not going to rehash the whole prayer this morning because we don't have the time to do that. But I believe the prayer that he prays here reveals to us why some people choose to abandon the comforts and pride of their position in order to fulfill God's purpose for them. It all starts with a broken heart. Notice in verse number 4, it says, And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down. When was the last time we did that? just, Just think about that for a minute. When was the last time you sat down? And I don't mean sat down and grabbed your phone. I don't mean sat down and just went straight to sleep. I mean sat down and thought about life and thought about God and His plan for you and thought about what this is all about. When was the last time you did that? Nehemiah, he sits down and, and it, it says there in verse number 4, he sat down and he wept. When was the last time we wept with a broken heart? Over the atrocities, the spiritual atrocities of our land and our brethren. It says that he sat down, he wept, he mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This is a man here, based on that description there, this is a man who has a broken heart. And you know, catapulting us from our comfortable positions into the purpose of God, it all starts with a broken heart. It starts with us recognizing that there is more to live for than my own personal comfort. Dear American Christians, it is time for us to see that my comfort is not the chiefest aim. The glory of God is the chiefest aim. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what this is all about. And that may push us to uncomfortable places. Oh, we desperately need to be moved out of our comfort zone for the cause of Christ. Fulfilling God's purpose begins with a broken heart. It moves from there to a battered heart. We won't read them, but verses 5 through 7, Nehemiah describes how his sin, his father's sin, generational curses have pushed them into this very dark time in Israel's history. And he begins to confess before God all the sins of his father and his family and his own sin personally. And by the time he gets done laying it all out, what we see is a man who's tired of sin. And you know, that's the second step to going from living for a position to living in God's will and God's purpose. The first thing we've got to do is have a broken heart over people. But the second thing we've got to have is a battered heart over sin. We've got to get tired of it. There are too many Christians right now, Christians right now, that are just perfectly thrilled with their sin. In fact, they don't want you to touch it. They don't want you to bring it up. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want you to preach about it. Because right now they're pretty happy with it. It's bringing them a lot of excitement. It's bringing them a lot of thrill and enjoyment. You know, the pleasures of sin, they are 
They are pleasurable for a season. But then there's destruction. It's a broken heart that leads from the comforts of our position to the purposes of God. It's a battered heart over sin that leads us into the purposes of God. It's also a believing heart. Look at verse 8 with me. Nehemiah says, he's basically sharing with God his own words. He says, Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. You know what Nehemiah is saying? He's saying, God, I believe you. There are a lot of Christians who say they're Christians, but they're not acting like they believe what God has said. Because God has said that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, but it doesn't end there, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's what God says. Now if we really believe that, that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, we'd stop walking in the flesh. We would start walking in the Spirit. We would surrender our lives to God's purposes and God's plan. But instead, we keep living for ourselves, doing what we want, when we want, how we want, without even the consideration of what God might want. Nehemiah's heart was broken. His heart was battered by sin. His heart was believing in his God. And finally, the fourth aspect of Nehemiah's heart expressed by his prayer here that drove him out of the comforts of his position into God's plan for his life was that he had a brave heart. He had a brave heart. Look at verse number 11 here. It says, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy. Now listen to this phrase, in the sight of this man. Now, we don't know yet what Nehemiah is praying for, but we're about to in, verse, or in chapter number 2. What Nehemiah is praying for is for the courage and for God's presence to be upon him so that whenever he walks into the presence of King Artaxerxes, that his heart will be open to a potentially deadly request. The king's cupbearer is about to have the audacity in chapter number 2 to walk into the presence of the king and ask if he can leave his position as cupbearer to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That takes a lot of courage. You know, I believe these same four things that drove Nehemiah from being the king's cupbearer to an average carpenter. Which some people in the world would look at and think, man, why is he taking steps back in his career? I mean, why on earth wouldn't he just grab a hold of that position whenever it was offered to him? I mean, he's the king's cupbearer at this point. Who knows what he might be in another 10 years if he keeps at it. Man, his 401k is going to be booming when he retires. 
the world would look at it and think, what on earth were you thinking, Nehemiah? But I think he was thinking the same thing Billy Sunday was. This is what God's telling me to do. You know, one of these days we're all going to die. And our money's going to go wherever our money goes, however it gets there. And if Christ tarries, we'll all face that same unfortunate end. And when we stand in the presence of God and we start to list off all the great achievements that our position afforded us on this side of heaven, I fear that too many people will be shattered when God looks at us and says, yeah, but what about the people? What about the people that I put you around? How did you invest in them? The person at the front desk, did you ever, did you ever talk to them about me? Your children. I gave you those children with one very important purpose in mind, and that was to train them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. How'd you do at family devotions? Did you ever pray with your children? I'm not talking about at the meals, but I'm talking about meaningfully pray with your children. Did you ever do that? Did you ever open up my, my word? I mean, I gave you my entire revealed word so that you could share it with your family. How often did you do that? And then all of a sudden, it'll begin to become very real to us that we totally wasted the life that God had given us by choosing rather than invest in people to invest in things. You know, the kind of heart that Nehemiah had, the kind of heart that Billy Sunday had, the kind of heart that Moses and Abram and, and, and the Apostle Paul and Luke had, the kind of heart they all had is the kind of heart that catches the eye of God and ultimately results in God's purpose being fulfilled in our lives. Say, how does God have the right to ask me to abandon my pursuit of a position in order to fulfill His purpose? Well, I know it's past time, but I want to close with the ultimate example of giving up one's position to fulfill God's purpose. It's something that's right here in front of me. You realize that God the Son went from being the beloved creator of the universe, residing in the glorious portals of heaven to be laid down as a baby in a manger ultimately so that he could be killed crucified for us you know he made the ultimate investment in people he was battered and bruised for our sin he knew it was what his father wanted and so he bravely obeyed even to the death of the cross now with that, as our shining example, I believe it is only reasonable for God to ask us to sacrifice our lives for Him. I'll close by quoting Romans chapter number 12, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's why we're here. It all begins, like I said, with a broken heart, 
And a good place to express that broken heart is here at this altar. So I'm going to ask you all to stand with me this morning. God's Word has gone out. The sweet Holy Spirit has guided that process. And now it is time for you to respond. God has moved. God has spoken and God has worked. Now the question is, will you open your heart and surrender your life to whatever His purposes might be? You say, preacher, I've been at this a long time. Don't have a whole lot of life left to give. Oh yes, but your life is still so important. And I believe God has a great purpose and plan for your life. It's why you're here today. And I believe this altar is a wonderful place to come, almost like a Christmas gift, to come and offer your heart and your life back to the Lord Jesus. He's given you His life. Will you give Him yours?